a 2-1 victory for Manchester United over West Ham before shock defeats to West Ham in the Carabao Cup and Aston Villa in the Premier League. As always, it's the Furry Files Podcast. And feeling fine. Nope, not feeling fine at all. It's the Fergie Files podcast. It's episode three. Oh man, what a what a week and a half it's been since the last episode of the Fergie Files podcast. I hope you, dear listener, are doing well. Unfortunately, in the land of Manchester United, things are not looking as chipper as they once were this season. Uh, looking at a couple of shock defeats to uh, West Ham and Aston Villa. To be fair to West Ham, I, I wouldn't actually really call that a shock defeat in truth. I do love a grabby headline, but West Ham's a good side, and they absolutely deserve the win in the Carabao Cup for a multitude of reasons, but we'll get into all that in just a moment. Um, we'll talk about all three of the matches. The last time in Episode 2, we left off with Manchester United's shock 2-1 loss to BSC Young Boys in the Champions League on Match Day 1. Uh, that was away in Bayern in Switzerland, and uh, we're looking ahead to tomorrow, which is Wednesday, September 29th. Manchester United back in the Champions League, Match Day 2, at home at Old Trafford against Villarreal. So we will talk about all of the recent results We'll look forward to that match. Uh, We'll talk about a couple of uh, key players in Manchester United season who I think will be really important and play pivotal roles as we go forward uh, for the rest of the season and determine whether or not we are uh, title contenders, Champions League contenders, or FA Cup contenders when the time comes. Um, We'll also talk about best dressed and worst dressed. Now, I haven't had an opportunity to watch very much European football in the past week and a half, so it's mostly been Premier League stuff. Um, I'm always trying to stay up to date with at least the highlights and the extended highlights that uh, NBC Sports so graciously offers us. So I do have some good picks for best and worst dressed this week as well. So let's get into everything. Let's start off with where we left off. Uh, It was a bit of a prophetic moment for me. uh, And I say that because in episode two, for those who listened, you may have recalled that my uh, inkling was that despite my tendencies of wanting to be a more negative, pessimistic fan, I ended up suggesting that it would be a 2-1 victory for Manchester United in the Premier League over West Ham United. Uh, after going down a goal and then scoring uh, a goal on either side of halftime, that's how it would play out for us. That was my prediction, and boy, did I hit the nail on the head. I uh, love to toot my own horn and just say, wow, well done me. Um, it was a a uh, goal from Saeed Ben Rama from West Ham in the first half to give them the early lead. It took a massive deflection. I believe it was off Jared Bowen. May have hit a United player as well. I don't recall um, at this point. Uh, but regardless, De Gea totally wrong-footed and well-played. Uh, fair play to West Ham for scoring the goal. Um, then who else but Cristiano Ronaldo to level the score before halftime? It was a moment of pure Portuguese connection between Bruno Fernandes out on the left wing as he picks up the ball. Uh, plays it onto his right foot and kind of opens his hips a little bit. He surveys and takes a look and sees Ronaldo toward the back post, ready to make the run. He puts a, just a pinpoint cross in there, and Ronaldo gets it on target. Now, the keeper made a good save and kept the ball out of the net, uh, but Ronaldo is there to tap in the tap in the rebound. So it was uh, 1-1 to Manchester United and West Ham as we went into the half. Um, not to Manchester United, but it was 1-1 as we entered halftime. Uh, then coming out in the second half, it was a very interesting back-and-forth second half. Um, When Jesse Lingard came on in the second half, he did make a very strong impact on the match, and I was happy to see that for him, especially considering his shocker of a performance 
um, in the Champions League. And, uh, you know, I know that for myself, I was nervous about how he would respond. Um, let's finish up the recap, and then I do want to get back to Jesse Lingard, though. So he makes his appearance. He's playing well. 88th minute comes along. Nemanja Matic on the left side for Manchester United on the front foot uh, zips a pass into Jesse Lingard. He takes it well, controls it nicely, and curls a beautiful effort. Uh, past the keeper and into the top corner to give Manchester United a 2-1 lead and ultimately a 2-1 victory. Uh, so it was another strong performance. It's kept us in a good position. I believe on that weekend we might have been sitting top, but it was a Saturday game, so not everyone had played yet, if I recall correctly. Um, and in the end, it was a good performance and a good win from us. I always say that Teams that win when they don't play well are the teams that typically are in the hunt um, and in the title race towards the end of the year. So um, well done to Manchester United for getting the victory. <sighs> okay, that's the only positive really that we have to take away from the last week and a half for Manchester United, unfortunately. Um, let's really quickly talk about Jesse Lingard before we go much further. So Jesse Lingard is a guy who, as we talked about briefly, gave away two points to young boys in the Champions League. And as we all know, two points can be the difference between staying in the Champions League or going to the Europa League. It can be the difference between uh, being in the Europa League or being totally done. It can be the difference between third and fourth or first and second. It's Every point is critical in the Champions League. So it's a shame that he ended up being the culprit of a very critical error for us at a crucial point in the game where we were so deep into stoppage time on what should have been a very simple back pass. I personally was very worried about what this would do to his confidence. This is a guy who has openly talked about his struggles with his mental health, especially over the last couple of years. And um, it was a direct effect on the way that he performed on the pitch. And so for someone who's been doing so brightly and started so positively this season after a great spell at West Ham last season, I was nervous that this would have a really detrimental effect on his season because it's early days, and he knows the importance of it, but you just hate to be that guy, and you hate to see him be that guy. So um, I'm really glad to see that when he came back on, he was just ready to make up for that error in his own mind. I don't think any of the fans felt that he needed to do that. It's, a, it's an error, and there's really nothing more to it than that, but he came out and said, I'm ready to prove that I belong here and should be here at this club, and can make an impact on these matches. And, I mean, boy, did he do that with the sumptuous finish, let's call it, uh, as the commentators often like to describe it. I mean, it was gorgeous, and he just really rifled it into the top corner with no second thought or hesitation. He, he absolutely knew where he was going. He picked a spot, and he went for it, and it paid off big time. I have to give him a lot of credit as well because, for me, I personally always love to see uh, when players respect the other clubs, especially the other clubs that they've played for, and... It was a nice gesture to West Ham. I thought that he didn't want to celebrate. That's a club that I think for him means a lot because it really gave him a second chance to start his his to restart his career, let's call it. It was really in a period of a big lull for like 18 months and I think or something like that and he he needed something to really get him going again and and last season at West Ham he showed how ca capable and how talented of a player he really is. So I thought it was a really nice gesture from him to not uh, want to celebrate and not overly celebrate despite giving us a borderline Fergie time winner against West Ham in the Premier League. Um, but away from home at the London Stadium, wanting to be respectful of the fans. I really liked that from him. So so cheers to you, Jesse. That was a really nice move. And I'm sure the West Ham fans would appreciate that as well. 
Okay, moving on from Jesse Lingard, the next performance was, of course, a back. It was a back-to-back situation with West Ham. A few days later, as West Ham and Manchester United squared off at Old Trafford in the Carabao Cup, and it was a very, very disappointing one-nil loss. Um, Manuel Lanzini scored uh, in the ninth minute, I believe it was. And I've watched that goal back a couple times, and it really has to be said. And as much as I don't like to say this. It was Donny van de Beek who um, is responsible tactically for that goal, 100%. Um, so let's take it back really quick to the starting 11 before we break down actually that goal. I, I believe, and please feel free to correct me on Instagram or send me an email if I'm wrong, but as far as I recall, it was 11 changes to the starting side. It was a full-blown redo for the entire side um, for this Carabao Cup match. And I'm trying now to remember... Who played left back? Uh, but as far as I recall, anyway, it was a it was a very very changed side from the side that just a few days earlier had beaten West Ham, um, and of course, uh, we didn't even really talk about this. But uh, Mark Noble had a chance in the Premier League match to level the match in the ninety sixth minute, and frankly, I know that a lot has been made of David De Gea saving the penalty and everything, and of course you. You know, it's a shot on target, and you have to save it, and he did that. So credit to David De Gea for making the save, but it was a poor penalty from Mark Noble as well, and I think we have to we have to mention that, that Mark Noble, you know, hasn't had a touch. David Moyes thinks, let's do this. Let's bring him on just for the penalty. He's the penalty taker. His record is excellent, whatever it is. Um, you know, I, I forget what numbers they said exactly, but he is pretty much spot on from – from the spot so it makes sense that they wanted him to take it now is that the time to sub him in and not having had a kick in the last basically breath of the game I don't know good for David De Gea for making the save but I don't think you can give him a ton of credit and I'm sure that's an unpopular opinion but really it was not a good penalty it was a savable height he didn't really pick the corners or uh, make the goalkeeper really have to work Um, again it's a strong hand from De Gea and I was elated that he made the save and we were able to keep the three points um but i don't think it was anything that he would be super proud of mark noble for having taken that penalty it's not like it was this breathtaking save which we've seen day and make many times i don't think this was one of his best saves um you know so i would have to say that ultimately that falls on mark noble's shoulders uh, and then you look at now again after that match switching everybody over for the carabao cup and basically going with a whole new team west ham didn't make I don't believe, as many changes. Um, that it seemed that they had a lot of their uh, usual players in the lineup, and I'm not exactly sure how many changes they made. Um, of course, this isn't a West Ham podcast. But first of all, it's always a gamble when you go into these cup matches, and you always, as a manager, have to make those decisions, right, of who stays, who doesn't. How many people do we want to utilize? Do we trust who we have on our bench? What's our depth look like? What's our schedule coming up look like? Do we want to factor in that we could give some of our uh, typical starters or our first team guys a bit of a run out in the first half and then switch over to the subs in the second? Do we want to not use them at all? What's the game plan, right? So as far as, I mean, yeah, I don't know. As far as a game plan is concerned, it's hard to, it's hard to fault Oli for switching the team up. But that said, when you look at the goal, you know, Donny van de Beek, who has not featured a lot and has a lot has been made of that in the press and from the fans and everything that he's not getting as many minutes as he should. I hate to say this. I would love to see him play more too. I like him a lot and he's a strong player, but you know, 
if you watch that goal back, he loses Lanzini 30 yards from goal. Like he has, he's marking him across, across the center of the pitch. And the play gets moved out to the right-hand side, and they start marching down the right. And I think it's Ben Rama who has it, and he draws the attention of three or four players. So Nemanja Matic, who would have helped Van de Beek in this situation, is drawn in. And then I think whoever we had playing at left back and possibly one of the center backs, there's three or so players around there who are all kind of focused on that. And Van de Beek, who's lurking a little bit, maybe 10 yards or so behind the play or away from the play towards the center of the pitch, is caught ball watching 100%. And during that moment of not paying attention, as they start to progress down towards the touchline, or toward the end line, rather, Lanzini just picks up on the fact that no one is marking him and just peels back. And he just decides they're they're going straight towards the end line and I don't really need to follow this. I'm going to cut back and head towards the spot, which is absolutely what any striker or winger who's uh, worth anything should do, right? They, they see where that play is going to go. He knows that move and he just backs off. And he finds himself in acres of space. I mean, probably a 10-yard radius of space. No one picked him up and really it should have been Donny van de Beek who was aware of where he was could have at least cut off that passing lane or could have marked him closer to not make it such an easy finish. He has all the time in the world to collect the ball, set himself, and place it in the back of the net. And really, he did place it. He doesn't have to smash it. He doesn't have to put his laces through it or anything crazy. He had the time, and he's a, he's a very talented player. I, Manuel Lanzini is someone I've always liked. Um, you know, He has all the capability to put that in the back of the net 10, 10 times out of 10, and he certainly did that there. And we were made to pay for it. I think the problem with Manchester United and our game plan right now is we are very heavily reliant on a sole striker to carry the load for us and in this match it was Anthony Martial who was expected to be that guy Um, and this is problematic for a lot of reasons in my opinion Um, you really have to question a whether he will be here or not next season and based on performances like that you start to wonder if Ole is really going with a uh, you know target man center forward as the approach that he wants to implement with the t- with this team, um, I don't know where Anthony Martial fits in because I wouldn't put him on the left over, uh, you know, Greenwood or Sancho or Rashford when any of, when Rashford is fit. You know, I, I I don't know that I'd start him on the wing over those guys. And when you've got three top tier guys who can play on the wing, not to mention some of the other guys in the team like Anthony Alanga, who had a very impressive performance in this match, I thought. I don't know that Martial, for the amount that he costs to keep him at the club and the lack of amount that he's going to be playing for us, it seems, that he'll be around much longer. And it's a shame. I I really have always liked Anthony Martial and supported him and been a big fan of his and uh, hoped he would continue to do well for us because he's had some really strong seasons where he carried a lot of the load and shouldered the load for us. So... It would be a shame to see him just disappear into the night and become a player who we just kind of offload because we don't need him anymore. Um, But that said, it was clear that when he's playing, we didn't design that system around him, right? He's trying to fit into a system that the manager wants to utilize, and he doesn't really have a clear fit. I think Anthony Martial would play a lot better in a scenario where he has another striker to play off of, a two you know, a two-person situation up top. And maybe he will get that opportunity, um, you know, if Jaden Sancho continues continues to underperform, which I think he's been doing since he signed for the club. Um, you know, maybe that will shift and he will get more chances and prove his worth and be able to play in a different way. 
but right now it was so clear it particularly in this match that that was our game plan it's it's not so much like we're just gonna hoof it downfield every single time we touch the ball and and hit it up there and hope somebody can head it down or head it on goal that's not really what i'm saying it's more just that we have a clear lack of a clear lack of connection between midfield and attack when you don't have Bruno Fernandez and Cristiano Ronaldo on the pitch. And that's a big problem because like it or not, Manchester United are going to continue to compete in four competitions season after season, especially with the introduction of a third tier European competition like the UEFA conference league. So no matter how bad it gets, you'd be shocked to see Manchester United not competing in Europe. And that basically means that, we're going to play 50-odd games every season. Um, so you need to have a second string that you can rely on. And, of course, this is one performance, so this is not hit the panic button. Um, you know, the roof is on fire and it's the house is coming down time yet. But this was a really bad performance, and it really, I think, opened my eyes and hopefully opened uh, the ownership and the management's eyes to where we are lacking right now. Um, you know, defensively, of course, there needs to be someone who's, you know, you think of N'Golo Kante, of course, he's sort of the gold standard for a central defensive midfielder who Lanzini does not have that space if N'Golo Kante is on the pitch, I can tell you that much. And there's players like Fabinho um, and other players in the Premier League. One who's been talked about is Wilfred Ndidi from Leicester. There's a lot of other players actually who fill in that role and would say no chance. Uh, even on West Ham's team with Declan Rice, who's one who's been linked to Manchester United a lot, there's no chance he's giving him that much space. Um, Nemanja Matic uh, also, I think, is at fault because he really shouldn't be chasing that play down the side. He shouldn't be getting sucked out to the wings either because he's of no assistance there, and obviously pace is not what his skills um, are. I would say that pace is probably one of his least impressive skills. So... Um, for me, you've got to keep Matic in the middle of the park, and you've got to keep Van de Beek aware of where his man is when he's marking Lanzini uh, across the pitch. He's got to keep an eye on him as they move into the box. Um, and that's pretty much it, truthfully. I know that it was some ridiculous number, like 27 shots or something like that. It was a crazy number. Let's do a, a quick Fergie Files fact check here because I, I would really actually like to get this right. It was a large number of shots, as I recall, that we were able to get on target. And yet watching the match, I honestly can tell you, uh, yeah, it was 27 shots according to Google that uh, we were able to get, but we got six on target. So to me, I don't understand how you're going to have a game where you dominate possession, which they did, 61%, 584 passes, and the accuracy is 84%. We're finding our guys. We're doing nothing with it. I mean, we're doing borderline nothing with it. If you look at the shots as a percentage of the number of shots total that we took, six shots on target out of 27 shots is a 22% success rate of just getting the ball on target. And I hate to say this, 22% of our shots being on target is not going to trouble a whole lot of Premier League goalkeepers. And I mean any of them. I mean the teams that are in dead last are also not going to be a whole lot bothered by this. Forget about the Man Cities and the Liverpools and the Chelsea's and the teams who are actually competing for trophies every season. So this was a very problematic and eye-opening match for me. The, you know, as much of a buzz as we've had about Ronaldo being back and his performances have literally carried us to victories and kept us in fourth place in the Premier League, right? It sounds silly that I'm here saying, oh my God, Manchester United, eye-opening, poor performance, lost to West Ham when we're in fourth place in the Premier League. 
That said, we're out of the EFL Cup. We've lost our first Champions League match. We've lost Juan Bissaka in that Champions League match as well due to a red card. And then you have to factor in the fact that against Aston Villa, we also saw that Harry Maguire picked up an injury, um, you know, and that we had another injury as well. I think it was to Scott McTominay. So, you know, it, these are not promising signs for us as we go forward this season to be out, you know, of a competition that we really, that's one that we typically can make it pretty far in that comp I mean usually we can make that to at least the quarterfinals or the semifinals, right? It's a shame to me that we just give up the opportunity to do that. Um so, you know, that's a big concern. Um and I'm sorry I completely forgot that it was Luke Shaw who picked up um an injury in the first half of of the match against Aston Villa, which we have yet to talk about. So, you know, it's this whole pattern that you're starting to see that's very reminiscent of seasons past where we just seem to not be able to capitalize on good spells for us. When we're having a good moment, um, it seems that we are not able to really take full advantage of it, and that's a worrying sign for me. Um, okay, look, I've, I've harped on that performance enough. Let's get through this next performance and then try to get back to some positivity. So it was Premier League Saturday, waking up early morning, uh, 6.30 Central Time, 7.30 Eastern for Manchester United's abysmal 1-0 loss to Aston Villa. Um, I want to talk about Bruno Fernandes for sure at the end of this. Um, but look, basically it was the same story, right? A team that looked like mostly out of ideas. Aston Villa, I think, is a team we probably underestimated collectively as a fan base, as a team. That's a team that's bouncing off the back of a 3-0 drubbing of Everton. I mean, they looked strong. Danny Ings has looked great. Um, you know, in the absence of Jack Grealish, they actually look like a better balanced team that's not so reliant on one guy. John McGinn is a very quality player. Their center backs look strong. Uh, the, the backbone of this team straight down the middle of the park looked great, I thought. So, you know, you've got to give Aston Villa a little bit more respect and prepare accordingly for this match. And to me, it seemed like we didn't. Mason Greenwood was, I think, the only positive that I really saw from this match. And the poor kid is absolutely working his socks off and just couldn't get a couldn't get a good shot out of his boots all day. And I don't really fault him for that. He was driving past players and getting himself to the end line and and trying to put crosses in and trying to get shots on goal and he had maybe one opportunity that he could have squared it to Ronaldo and it was a tough pass but he could have made it happen and he didn't. Um, and other than that I have no complaints about his performance whatsoever. I think Mason Greenwood was probably our only bright spark going forward. I think you may have seen Ronaldo once also with a couple step overs and try and get a shot away as well. So, you know, I don't have a huge problem with those guys in particular. But again, this is ludicrous that we've got 28 shots that we get up on target in that match. And now this is two back to back with a lot of shots up. We are putting shots up, you know, shooters got to shoot four shots on target. I mean, how is that possible? Correct me if my math is wrong, but is that not one seventh of the shots that we're getting up? I mean, that's just absurd. That's such a poor rating for us to have 14% of those shots be on target. I mean, that's crazy when you look at the talent that we have up top. And especially when you look at the players who are actually getting out there and playing. I mean, Mason Greenwood is maybe the best natural finisher we've seen in a very long time. Then you've got Cristiano Ronaldo. Bruno Fernandez obviously knows how to hit the back of the net. And then there's Paul Pogba, who admittedly for United has never been a major goal-scoring uh, contributor to, to the team. 
but he has a history with uh, Juventus of definitely banging in some goals. He scored plenty of goals for the French national team, and he has scored the odd goal for Manchester United as well. So how do you have four players who are top-tier players who can score, and they're not able to get essentially what breaks out to be one shot apiece on target in 90 minutes? That's insane to me. Um, and is a really poor showing. Now, don't get me wrong. The fact that we lose our starting left back and our starting center back to injury and probably two of the most important players for stability in our team, and both were relatively early. I mean, Luke Shaw was in the first half. Harry Maguire came out in the second half, as far as I recall. This is problematic, you know, uh, for a lot of reasons. But Luke Shaw, I mean, Paul Pogba was never going to do anything without support coming in from behind him. So I can see what Oli was thinking, like, let's get Luke Shaw bombing up there. Pogba cuts inside, and now Pogba's available to be a threat from cutting inside off of the wing. Pogba's never going to run past players on the wing, but he's definitely a threat when he's in that kind of corner edge of the box position with the ball at his feet. And then he can find any of the other three guys with Fernandez and Greenwood and Ronaldo and McTominay lurking even, who we've seen has pretty impressive power and can hit him on target as well. So without Luke Shaw, that changes the dynamics of the game. You know, you bring in Diego Dallo, who I like a lot, but then I think that forced um, Juan Bissaka to switch sides, if I remember correctly. And uh, even if it didn't, it's hard to replicate how good Luke Shaw has been. And Dallo, who had a very good loan spell at AC Milan last year, is still not quite as good as Luke Shaw. Um, you know, and then you have to bring in Victor Lindelof in place of Harry Maguire later on. It just changes the way that our team plays. You know, Harry Maguire is a presence on the field for us and because the opposition knows him. Um, you know, a player like Ollie Watkins or Danny Ings is going to get bullied by Harry Maguire and less so by Victor Lindelof. Glenn Love's a guy I like a lot as well, but he's not the same player as Harry Maguire. So to lose both of those guys for indefinite amounts of time is not a good thing. And it was definitely not a good thing in this match. Um, you know, it was a shame to me that we made it so long in the match and then conceded because you just knew that this kind of thing was coming. And you could tell there was a couple penalty shouts that didn't go our way. It, whatever, that's normal, um, you know. But then from a set piece, we bring on Cavani um, in place of Scott McTominay towards the end of the match, right? We're trying to get something from the game, and it's nil-nil, and we're at home. Why would we not try and go for it? But again, it's the same as the Carabao Cup where Cavani loses his head a little bit trying to defend a corner, and the center back, Hauset, is uh, able to break free, get probably a yard and a half of space on Cavani, and just slams a header into. I mean, it's really more of a glancing header, but the power generated from the free uh, from the corner. I mean, it just sails into the back of the net. And really, it's Cavani's job. I know that he's the striker. He's barely been on the pitch, and he's marking a guy who's a little bit bigger physically and and um, in his height than Cavani is. But you still got to be there to give him a little bit of a challenge. And Cavani was just a step late, and that is enough at this level to see us lose three points at home. Um, you know, of course, a lot of people talked about in the aftermath the Bruno Fernandez missed penalty. It was a correct decision, in my opinion, that it should have been a penalty, but um, I don't have any problem with Bruno Fernandez taking the penalty. I appreciate that Ronaldo respected the fact that Bruno Fernandez is the guy when it comes to taking penalty kicks since the last year and a half, almost two years. And I respect that Bruno Fernandez went for power and wanted to smash it home and, and, salvage a point 
I don't have a problem with the fact that he missed it. I really don't. When you've been as consistent and as good as Bruno Fernandez has and also showed the level of dedication and passion to the club as Bruno Fernandez has, not to mention the fact that Bruno Fernandez has been the first and quickest person every time to be very visibly distraught about losing any match, uh, about having any error or any bad game. I have no problem with the way that Bruno played. So I, I can't fault him at all for that. Um, you know, I can fault people for trying to sow this doubt into the team of, well, why didn't Ronaldo take the penalty and why didn't Bruno give it to him? And why it's, it's Cristiano Ronaldo. Why don't you step aside? Those, I think, are often players who haven't been in the position where you're playing with one of the greatest of all time and where you're talking about dealing with an established player in the side, right? These guys are guys who are national teammates. They respect each other. They've known each other for a while. And Bruno says, no, this is my duty for the club. I know that you're here and you're a legend, but this is what I do. And Ronaldo respects that. And that's how it should go. And honestly, eight, nine times out of 10, Bruno puts that in the back of the net. Same as Ronaldo. I don't think either of them are scoring 10 in a row. Um, so it's the one bad one. He, you know, he, he had that. If suddenly he misses four or five in a row, then yeah, let's talk about maybe he doesn't take penalties for a while anymore. Um, but there is no big issue. First of all, the fact of the matter is the referee still are hesitant to give us any kind of foul, let alone a penalty kick. So uh, he's got to get to the spot before he can miss them. Let's see us get to the spot a couple more times and then talk about who wants to take them after Bruno Fernandes misses four or five in a row. I have no problem with him taking it, and I really don't think it's his fault. I would urge everyone to not blame him for the way that that match turned out because to do that is to minimize our much larger scale problems as a club and as far as our system is concerned into one moment, and that's a little bit silly. So uh, I would say let's give him the benefit of the doubt on this one. Uh, let's try and actually factor in that we don't have two uh, two wingers on the on the pitch, which is a very clear part of the way that our team works. Um, so why we're starting Pogba over, uh, you know, over giving Martial a run out on the wing, um, you know, or giving Sancho another try against Aston Villa um, and not just basically stranding Greenwood to do all of the legwork down the other side is beyond me. Uh, that would have been my recommendation. But hey, here we are. We are. I don't even know how many weeks in now this was. Oh, let's see. Week six of the Premier League season. Uh, so six match weeks in. We are in our second Champions League match week. We are out of the Carabao Cup. Honestly, of all of the trophies to not be able to compete for, yes, that's the one I would like it to be. That said, I want to win them all. I'm a fan from the era when we used to go out there and win them all. Um, so I would really like to at least be in a position where we're back competing to make it to the final and making it to the semifinals of every major tournament that we have on our schedule at the beginning of the season. Um, and unfortunately, right now, that is not where we are. Okay, what a bummer of a podcast so far. What a depressing run for Manchester United. Let's take a moment and uh, collectively do a deep breath and look ahead to what is coming up. First of all, I will talk about the next three fixtures that we have. We are at home in the Champions League tomorrow, which is Wednesday, September 29th, in the Champions League against Villarreal, a team who we lost to in the Europa League final last season on penalties. Um, you know, of course, that was an insane penalty shootout. And hey, here's hoping we can get a little bit of revenge on our rivals from Spain. Uh, then looking forward to Saturday, October 2nd, it's a 6.30 a.m. Central Time kickoff against Everton. We are at Old Trafford for that one before a international break. 
um, and then playing again on the 16th of October at 9 a.m. Central against Leicester City, and that one is away at the King Power Stadium. All right, let's talk about Villarreal. Um, Manchester United, it looks like, have traveled with a very strong squad. We have Cavani back from injury, which is very positive. As far as I am aware, McGuire is out. Uh, as far as I am aware, Luke Shaw is out of contention to play in this match. Um, I certainly may be behind the times on this one in particular. Um, so what do you do? Who do you start with? I think Eric Bailly being fit is a good thing, but I don't know if you would start him ahead of Victor Lindelof, who has actually played alongside uh, Rafael Varane so far. That said, is there a French connection with the uh, Ivorian speaking French uh, with Rafael Varane and a stronger center back pairing there? Who knows? We could see that happen, and I would be okay with it. Either way, I do think it's a bit of a toss-up between Bailly, um, Bailly, the former Villarreal man himself, and Victor Lindelof. So it could be a very interesting center-back pairing there. We'll keep our eyes on that one. I would definitely expect that Diego Dallo is playing as well if we are missing Luke Shaw. Um, you know, And then you got to look ahead to the midfield. Personally, for me, I think the most effective midfield trio we've had is Bruno Fernandes, Paul Pogba, and Fred. I would very much like to see us start with that. I think Nemanja Matic right now at this stage in his career has a much bigger impact for the side coming off the bench. So I think that's probably our best case scenario. I would very much hope that we um, are going to stick with that strong midfield three. And then when you look up front, I think for me, I would say I would really want to go with Cristiano Ronaldo and with Mason Greenwood and then with Jaden Sancho. I I know he's been underperforming for us. I do think he'll come good, though, and I am still backing him. Um, you know, I am still backing him to to make it happen. Um, I think he just needs more time to figure out really where he's going to fit into this team and how he's going to fit in, what his role is going to be. He was the guy alongside Marco Royce um, at Borussia Dortmund, in my opinion. That you know, I watched them play. Then you have Erling Holland come in, and okay, things start to change and whatever. But Jaden Sancho was the guy. I mean, you know, that's why they wanted so much money for him, and that's why it was so hard for us to pick him up. But I think you have to uh, respect the fact that what he's done for that club um, has earned him this sort of reputation as an absolute world beater, and yet he's now at Manchester United where things are different, the competition is different, and it's a stiffer defense that he's usually facing in the Premier League than it is in the Bundesliga. I think defensively we can say that typically the Premier League defenders are bigger, stronger, um, a little bit quicker, a little bit better with the ball at their feet from what I've seen, and the Bundesliga is certainly one of the leagues that followed the most, uh, familiarly being a Bayern fan. Um, so I would say that Jaden Sancho just has to figure out how he's going to make his game work in England and how he's going to make it work at Manchester United. So I hope to see him start, and I hope that our team looks exactly like that. Just to confirm, I was able to confirm, actually, that Luke Shaw is a doubt for the match. He's closer to being back than Harry Maguire is, but it's not certain if he will make the match day roster for tomorrow. Um, Erwan Basaka still, of course, suspended from the uh, red card that he received against Young Boys, which was a straight red card, so that will see him out for three uh, Champions League matches. Um you know, so basically you've got three out of our four defenders are missing. It's not promising for us. I'm expecting then that our team is going to look like this. You've got De Gea in goal. I think that's deserved. Alex Tellez at left back. I would go personally with Victor Lindelof and uh, Rafael Varane, despite liking the Bailly French-speaking connection. 
um, and then Diego Dallo at right back. I would like to see Bruno Fernandez, Fred, and Paul Pogba in midfield. And then I would like to see up front, the front three of Jaden Sancho on the left, Cristiano Ronaldo up front, and Mason Greenwood out on the right while we await the return of Marcus Rashford and Amadiello, who are also out injured. All right, so really quickly, before we wrap this up, um, it's been a lot of fun breaking down how poor we've been lately, and fingers crossed, we go again tomorrow. Let's let's get a victory. Let's get a draw. Let's get something out of this game at home tomorrow so that our Champions League doesn't seem like uh, this season is in total disarray. Um, yeah, let's talk about best dressed real quick and worst dressed real quick. I absolutely love my worst dress choice this week. It is Liverpool Football Club with the McDonald's-looking kit. Unbelievably bad. I've seen some yellow kits from Liverpool in the past that I actually didn't mind at all, and I think yellow and red is always going to be a dangerous combo to go with unless you get it very right. And In this case, I think they got it very wrong. They really did look like a whole Ronald McDonald thing, especially with the warm-up jackets they had at the beginning of their most recent match against Brentford. So Liverpool is the worst dressed. I have to give an honorable mention to Watford for uh, their all-red kit um, because it's a very similar problem. It's the red, yellow, black. And honestly, it's very reminiscent of a kit which I actually really liked. It's a very good uh, sort of polarizing picture between the Watford away kit of this season from Kelme and the 2006 Puma Angola kit that they wore at the 2006 World Cup in Germany. I think the stripes looked beautiful on the Angola kit. I was a big fan of that era of Puma kits. Um, and you just see that with the same basic color combination, the Watford away kit just didn't really make it work for me in particular. So that's an honorable mention, but still Liverpool was much worse, I have to say. Um, it also reminds me a little bit of a Belgium kit from the pre-Adidas era with that yellow, black, whole red kind of combination where it was just all swirled together and looked a bit strange. So not a big fan of the Watford away. Now on to best dressed, and I'm actually going to give it up to two matches um, where it's a tie. The first match was from match week five, and it was Brighton Hove Albion against Leicester, and the just the Brighton, oh, the Brighton kits with the vertical stripes, the, the white and the blue. It's a beautiful combination, and you just have to love that. And then you've got Leicester's away kit, which is gorgeous as well. I think they pulled off the gray-pink thing. I think you do need a really strong contrast to have a pink in your kit. And I think they nailed it with that. Adidas really got that one right. I liked the way that it looked in that match in particular. And that's a criteria I want to use going forward for the rest of this podcast is it's less about which kit is best or which kit I, I think is best, but about the whole environment of the kits and where they're worn and how the pitch looks and how they look in that particular stadium with the fans on that day, that whole environment. For me, that match, Brighton and Hove Albion and Leicester was a beautiful combination. The other one that I really liked as well is um, Aston Villa and Everton. I think Everton's kits with Hummel have been hit or miss, but when they're hit, boy, are they on. I've loved Hummel as a brand, uh, Danish brand, for uh, some time now, and I just love the way that they look coming down the sleeves. It's very reminiscent of uh, old-school kind of 70s, 80s, um, just an old-school rough-and-tumble football vibe, and I like that a lot. Um, so I believe they were wearing their white uh, kits, Everton were, with the yellow accents and the black Hummel logos going down the sleeves, and that's a beautiful look. And then Villa, I think you've got to give Villa a lot of credit for their home strip. I mean, Burnley has a similar thing, but they don't always get it right. Um, but that whole maroon and sky blue or baby blue or whatever you want to call it is just a beautiful thing. So 
Uh, really liked to see that. I think if I had to toss it up to one club for this particular episode, episode three, Brighton and Hove Albion, that home kit. Boy, oh boy. I'm telling you, that those stripes, they're underrated for sure. Um, and the warm-up tops, you got to check those out too if you haven't seen them. They're like a black with gold on the sleeves and on the shoulders. Very, very interesting looking. Very cool. I liked it a lot. So cheers to you, Brighton and Hove Albion, for winning this week's Best Dressed from the Hurricane Files podcast. All right, guys. Uh, I will be back after... Uh, after the Everton match, which is on October 2nd. So we'll have two matches to talk about and review for episode four. Sometime during that international break, we will jump back into this thing and I will get you an episode four of the Fergie Files podcast. But as always, uh, if you have questions, comments, want to give me any kind of topic to discuss or check out while we are doing this podcast, please reach out to me. Go to Fergie Files podcast on Instagram, which is at Fergie Files podcast, or feel free to send us an email um, and by us, I mean myself, at fergiefilespodcast at gmail.com. And I would be thrilled to have anything. So far, I've got nothing uh, from any of y'all. And I know mostly it's my mom listening. So mom, feel free to get your questions in. Um, and I would be happy to discuss it on episode four of the pod, which will come at some point in the middle of October. And otherwise, guys, here we go. Fingers crossed. Let's see if Man United can do something. Um, in the next two matches. Keep us towards the top of the Premier League when we take on Everton on the 2nd of October and hopefully get us some points in the Champions League and get this thing up and running for 2021. All right, it's been a pleasure. I'm out of here. As always, it's the Fergie Files podcast, and we'll see you next time.